This program is a part of the Full Press Radio Network. Find this and all of Full Press Coverage's shows on fullpressradio.com or free on the Full Press Coverage app, available now on the Apple and Google Play stores. Hey, this is Dean Blandino, and you're listening to Clark and Ira on the iTest for Two podcast. Well, last month we had two notable events. The first, of course, was Super Bowl 56, which was won by the Los Angeles Rams. And the second was the announcement that for the first time in the history of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, we will have a field official enshrined in Canton. That, of course, is Art McNally, who began his career as a field judge, rose to become the league's supervisor officials, and spent 58 of his 96 years working in and for the NFL. Now, if you watch the NFL Network when Art was told, I hope you did, he was notified of his election at his home in Yardley, Pennsylvania, by one of the Hall's recent inductees, and that's former NFL Commissioner Paul Tagliabue, class of 2020. And if you knew anything of either, it was hard not to be emotional. Now, we don't have Art McNally with us today, unfortunately, but we do have Paul Tagliabue, and we are delighted. Paul, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you join us. It's great to be here, especially to talk about art and share some stories about art. Well, first things first, I said it was emotional for anyone watching. My wife used to work in the NFL office, as you know, and she started honestly to tear up when she was watching you speak to Mr. McNally. How was it for you? It was very emotional. You know, it was emotional when uh, I got the call to uh, be invited to do this. Uh, it was the first time, I think, in, at least in recent years, that the Hall of Fame had existing Hall of Famers notifying the new inductees that they were in. So that was that was emotional in itself. But to do it for art, and I, I knew his, he, he was getting older and older. We all are, but his, his health was failing a bit. The different people had different opinions as to how how healthy he was. But but beyond that, he was a person who had no ego, was a great leader and a person of great integrity. It meant so much to the game and to the league and to the men who worked on the field. It was really a privilege to be invited to do, to tell him that I was the mailman and he was in the Hall of Fame. Well, you know what got to both of us is when he was seated there and you told him and he took his hat off. Yeah. I mean, a gentleman to the, to the end. I mean, a gentleman to the end. Well, you know, I brought that hat with me because I, I, I figured at some point officials got to have a hat. <laughs> I just I threw it in, threw it in my, my bag as I was going to the Amtrak train to get up to Philly, and it turned out to be a, a good prop and appropriate. But you know, the interesting thing was that uh, as as the morning went, went along, I learned that he was expecting information to come from the mailman, and he got in the habit of he had, got in the habit of going to the front door and checking checking the mail in mid morning. And so when I was able to tell him he was in the Hall of Fame. He said something like, oh, the mailman has arrived. <laughs> oh, there is no mailman. <laughs> You've gone from commissioner to mailman. Congratulations. So that, I, I became the mailman. <laughs> he even got up and went to the door. Went to the door and I, you know, his wife said to me, he's been doing that for a couple of weeks because someone said he would be getting a letter. And now, now, now he's got that idea that he's going to get a letter. And she had to explain, you're not getting a letter. The commissioner is the mailman. And he's here. <laughs> Paul, I'm, uh, 
Well, I'm down here in Tampa. I'm wondering why why you aren't in the Sunshine State with me in, in the middle of March. Well, you know, I my wife's not big on sunshine. She she and she likes to stay home. So, we, we if we came down there, we would probably go to the West Coast because we know so many people down there, including Don Montana, who worked with me for many years at the league. She's I think at Fort Myers, Naples, someplace over there. Right. So we might make it yet, but no plans for sure. Paul, I got a question. Two years into your commissionership. And of course, you, you, you had known Art for a long time before that. Um, and Paul, all of a sudden, Art McNally isn't going to work for the NFL uh, after 1990. So my question, Paul, was it a shocker to you? Had you discussed it with him? Did you try to talk him out of it? Well, he was, I talked, tried to talk him out of it, but he was pretty clear. I think he was turning 65. Yeah. He, he was approaching 25 years in the job from 1968. And I think, he, you know, Art was a person who uh, knew when to start and knew when to stop. And he just felt that there were men on the field who would, would be his successors. And, and the early years of my commissionership would be a good time to have a successor. So he stuck with his guns. And, we, you know, I think it worked out that Jerry Seaman did one of the last Super Bowls and, under Art. And then Jerry became the successor to Art. It was a great, group, a great group of men there, Jerry Mark Wright and Red Cash and so many others who had worked together for so long and respected each other. Paul, describe, um, you know, when Art was there and, and in charge, uh, those Monday morning sessions, Paul, uh, he would field the calls from, uh, you know, coaches, maybe some owners. You knew what was going on behind uh, closed doors on Monday mornings during the season. How did he handle that? Or what was his approach to those phone calls? Well, his, his approach was to be well-informed and to be calm and to be analytical. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, he, he, one thing that he, he really excelled at, he was, he, he was not just concerned with the performance of, the, of an individual crew. He was concerned about consistency among, across all crews and frequency Frequently, those were the issues. Sometimes it was an issue of a call, but frequently it was, you know, last week they didn't call this week, this week they're calling it. Why don't we have more consistency? So he, he was aware of both of how an individual crew performed, but how did the crews all together perform from the coach's standpoint and the players' standpoint. If they were calling it differently in different crews, it was not good. So he, he had a, a perspective that was complex, sort of a matrix. Uh, and, he, and he was analytical. And so whenever we spoke to owners, coaches, anybody else, Art was ready for it. And he was more analytical to most of the people he was talking to. You know, Bill Walls told me at some point early in my years, Bill retired just before I became commissioner. He said, if you get a complaint from a team that won, pay attention. If you get a complaint from a team that lost, expect it. <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> We're speaking with former commissioner Paul Tagliabue on the eye test for two. And Paul, um, I presented art to the Hall's board of selectors back in January. And I told him if there's one word you hear universally repeated with Art McNally, it's a word that you have mentioned earlier in this broadcast. It's integrity. Everyone mentions it, integrity. In fact, it was Jim Tunney, as I mentioned to the board, who once said, quote, I would play poker over the phone with Art McNally. That's how much I trust him, unquote. Is that how much you trust him? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, he, he, he earned that trust. And, and uh, you knew when you were talking to Art that, as I said earlier, there was no ego, there was no passing the buck. 
he was accountable, not just for what he did, but for what everyone did who worked for him and with him. And so if an issue came up, he, he would be a straight shooter and you, and you get a straight answer. And there was, there was no saying, well, they, they didn't do what I asked them. No, no excuses and no passing the buck with art. He, he, was, he was accountable. Well, as you know, his list of accomplishments as supervisor officials is, is long. It's extensive. And he was responsible for the hiring and grading of crews. Uh, he introduced wireless microphones. He added a seventh official to crews. He was a supervisor when the illegal contact rule was passed. And he certainly oversaw the introduction of instant replay as an officiating tool. What, in your estimation, was his greatest achievement or his greatest contribution? Well, you know, I was thinking about that, and this, this may sound funny, and it's not intended to be facetious, but one of his great achievements was working with the competition committee. That was not, it was not a group of shrinking violets in, in the 70s and in, in the 80s. It was Dex Randall, it was Paul Brown, it was Don Shula. Very demanding and, and, and very analytical about the game. You know, I used to go to those meetings sometimes at Pete Rosell's request, and was amazed at what they would go into. You know, they could discuss for three or four hours or a day the difference between a 42-second clock and a 45-second clock and, and, and how the three seconds would make a big difference. But, but, but when they completed their, their analysis, uh, they had a lot of confidence and convictions, and some, some, sometimes they were critical of officiating. But the art's ability to work with that group to, to, to withstand criticism, but more importantly, to be constructive and to start out immediately saying, well, if you want to do it that way, you know, we can do it that way, but listen to me first and, and give his opinion. It was good or bad, or maybe, maybe it was a little bit of good and a little bit of bad. But once he, once, he, once he got his marching orders, he was all in, guaranteed we can make that work. So cooperating with that committee, and Joe Bussett said that, you know, by 1978, when the committee made some significant rule changes, it was the collaboration between art, the officiating department, and the competition committee that gets a lot of credit for the success. Paul, you take a lot of pride in your memory, so I'm going to test you right now, Mr. T. Uh, we're going to go back 60 years, Paul. Uh, okay. you're, a you're a senior. Um, and my research, and we do our research on this show, Paul, your next to last game, I believe, in Georgetown was against LaSalle. LaSalle. You lost... 78-76. And Paul, LaSalle had a little pesky guard on that team. He was a pretty darn good player by the name of Bill Raftery. Paul, Bill Raftery was on that LaSalle team. You remember anything about him? And, of course, he went on to be a coach at Seton Hall. Well, he also went on to be a commentator on the Big East games. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I played against Bill in summer leagues when we were in high school in New Jersey. He was from Kearney House in Jersey City. I knew him well in high school. Great player and a, a great, great individual. Uh, good, good, uh, good memory there, uh, Paul. Uh, Paul, 2002, um, you're the commissioner uh, and you're a big part of creating the Rooney rule. Paul, we're, we're here 20 years later. Uh, I assume you're not overly um, pleased with the um, progress on, on that regard. Um, Paul, what, what can be done going forward to, uh, to accelerate this process? Well, you know, I think that uh, it's a complicated, complicated answer, but 
there's no single thing. It's got to be a, a lot of small things will, will make a difference. You know, I, I think that I'd start with the fact that as of now, 20 years later, I guess, 23 of the 32 teams have had coaches, either African-American coaches or Hispanic coaches. 21 have had African-American coaches and two have had Ron Rivera in Washington and Carolina. So 23 of the 32 have right. had minority coaches. That That's progress compared to where we were in 1989 when I arrived, there was one, Art Shell. When I left, I think the, the most we had in any single time was seven. So 21, 23 out of 32 is pretty good. If you look at the nine who have not had a minority coach, three or four of them haven't been in the market in the last decade and a half because it's been Bill Belichick, it's been Baltimore, it's been New England right. and, and, and New Orleans. So you're down to about six teams that have been in the market, let's say in the last decade, who haven't had minority coaches. So I think that's, that's a sign of progress. Is it a sign of enough progress? No. But uh, I think it comes down to a greater understanding on both sides that there's no single mold to be a head coach in the NFL. I, I, th I think sometimes I used to listen to coaches and they would say, when well, we had coaching seminars, they said, what do I need to do to impress an owner? And I said, it depends upon the owner because each owner has a different way of relating to the head coach and using a head coach. Uh, Dan Rooney's different from Pat Boland. And, Everyone's different from Wellington Mayor and Jerry Richardson. So I think there needs to be a greater understanding of that. And, and that's something that we can, that the league can work on. And I know they will work on that, but it's not going to be one wave of the wand. It's going to be a, a bunch of small things that become a ripple and eventually become a wave that's floating, floating in the right direction. Well, a couple last uh, Art McNally questions for me. One is that um, you spoke earlier of a great story when you met Art in uh, Yardley and what he had to say and what he thought, thought you were the mailman, you're not. Um, but do you have any favorite Art McNally story from your uh, tenure, your brief tenure, albeit brief when you, we were working with him at the NFL office? Any story that you like to tell about him? Not really, you know, Art, Art was not the guy who, uh, as I said before, there was no ego, he was calm, he, he, he was not flamboyant. And, and, he, and he never made himself the center of anything. He, he, if anything, he always put himself in the background. Yeah. And so when people are always in the background, you know, you, you don't have the stories that you have when you're talking about Jack Kent Cook or people like that. Right. So, <laughs> but my, you know, I guess one thing comes to mind. We had a, after Art retired and Jerry Seaman was the supervisor, Art was working on, I think he was leading our efforts with respect to the officials in NFL Europe. This was probably 1994, 1995. And uh, the question that came up was, uh, was, was, the, was the referee still the leader of the crew or, or had the role of the referee been reduced so that the referee was just one of, one of the crew and not the leader of the crew? And, and, and people felt that it was, it was really important to have people like Jim Tunney and Red Cash and Jerry Markwright and, and others. And that they inadvertently their role had been diminished. I have one story, which is an indirect story about Art McNally from Johnny Robinson. He told me that when he went from UCLA to the Rams, he, he never imagined the officiating would be very different between college football and the NFL. And, and, and at, the end, at the end of the first quarter, he thought there were a couple of bad calls already in his first quarter as a Rams coach. So during the commercial break, he called over the referee. 
and reamed him out, cursed him out, said, you can't tolerate that kind of stuff. It better not be another bad call in, in this game. And the referee, whoever it was, said to him, coach, if you say another word about the officiating in this game, you're not going to last until the second quarter. <laughs> so that, that, that's, that's the kind of respect that the referees had at that time. Right. By, by the time we were getting to the mid-90s, there was some feeling that some of the referees were that way, but others were becoming, their, their role as a leader was somewhat being diminished. So I talked to Art, and what we decided to do, I talked to Jerry Seaman and Art, and they worked together. And we put together a meeting of former, former officials and retired head coaches. Remember, we had Chuck Noll there. I think we had Don Shula there. I remember certainly we had Jim Tunney there and others. And we had a great discussion about the intangibles of officiating and, and how important it was. The dynamics of the crew were critically important. And, and the dynamics of each crew could be different depending on who was on the crew. And you, and you couldn't have a set of rules and expect every crew to just respond to the rules. Every, every crew had to respond to a leader and had to, resp had, had to deal with different dynamics. And, and that was art. That, that was an insight that art had that not everyone has about officiating. That there's got to be leadership, there's got to be rules, but there also has to be a delegation of responsibility and accountability at the crew level. And, and that's what ultimately makes for great officiating across the board. And I remember that meeting in part because Jim Tunney brought a, uh, a whistle with him. And he said that when, I, when he first started officiating in the 30s or 40s, uh, there was a whistle and a, and a horn. He brought a horn with him. And he said, if, if, you needed, if, the, if the referee needed to get the attention of the crew, he blew the horn. And he threw the horn on the table. He said, maybe we should go back to horns. The horn makes it clear who's in charge of the crew. But we, we, we decided not to do that. <laughs> well, uh, Dean Blandino, who you certainly know, uh, he's the former senior VP of officiating. He's been on this program and he referred to Art in, in glowing terms and, and thinks so fondly of him and said, quote, I don't think anyone anywhere had a bigger impact on the way the game is played than Art McNally, unquote. That's a pretty bold statement. Do you agree with that? Well, I agree with that. And as I said, it's in the context of that competition committee, which was, I think, so, so distinguished and so effective in shaping the modern game of football. Mm -hmm. And uh, like I say, I started going to some of those meetings around 1973, 1974, and it, it was it was an amazing group. And I, I tried to figure out why was it so instrumental at that time? Was it because the two leagues were combining? Was it because there were 26 teams and you had 13 games every week? Go back to 1960, you had five games every week. So what was it that made that committee so instrumental? And in some ways, I think it was the personalities of the people and the, and the zeal to be the best that, that was manifested by people like Paul Brown and Don Shuler, Tex Ram and others. And, and so I think a big thing, the big reason for Art's success is that he, had, he, he was given a big challenge by, by people who were good at putting down challenges and he, he responded it and probably exceeded their expectations. Paul, uh, last two for me. Thanks so much for your time, Paul. Really appreciate it. Paul, on instant replay, um, how did McNally uh, straddle the line in terms of uh, explaining it to the officials uh, that uh, we're not doing this to second guess you, uh, don't take it personal, it's for the good of the game. Um, how, how did he go about implementing that, that, uh, that new technology, Paul, without – 
uh, you know, turning off the officials? Well, I, I think it, it was because there was new technology. There was uh, a big difference between television in, in the mid-60s and television in, in the mid-70s. Uh, you know, Monday Night Football came in in 1970, but the technology was changing, and you were beginning to get pictures of the play on the field that were much different from what you had a decade earlier. But even with that, it didn't stick, you know, because, you know, George Young was the one who always said on the replay, we had more mistakes than we did before we had the replay. So it, it disappeared for a while. But I think Art's challenge was to deal with the technology and, and the, the quality of the telecast and the fact that uh, the whole country was now looking at the, the officiating as a big factor in the game, which is still the case. So I, I, part of it, it was part of it was the challenge and part of it was the reason that the men accepted it. And Paul, last one for me. Uh, Paul, when I look at your tenure, that there's so many accomplishments. The labor piece, unprecedented. Expansion, new stadiums, the aftermath of 9-11. But Paul, in my mind, I think one of your proudest moments, tell me if I'm wrong, is uh, how you handled the Saints post-Katrina um, and uh, how firm you were that uh, this franchise isn't going anywhere. Um, where does that whole situation rank among uh, uh, your prideful accomplishments, Paul? Well, you're right. I think it, it's way up there. Probably, probably the top two would be that and getting labor peace. And uh, the labor peace, of course, was involved getting dozens and eventually hundreds of people together. And but New Orleans was a special challenge. You know, the city was underwater. When your city's underwater, it's hard to see the big picture. And I think that it was important for the commissioner to step in and, and, and play the role of looking at the big picture and, and helping people get out, of the, out from under the water on top of the surf and, and to see the big picture together. And that's what happened with Tom Benson. In the early, in the early weeks and months, you couldn't imagine that there was a solution. As time went on, he, he came to agree there is a solution, and that's why he announced in early January that they were going to stay after suggestions along the way before that, that they couldn't stay because it was an untenable situation. So I think the short answer is when you're dealing with the tragedy, which that was for millions, tens of thousands, indeed millions of people, someone has got to, who's outside of the zone of the tragedy has got to provide leadership. And uh, I, was, I think I was able to do that with Roger Goodell and people in New Orleans. It wasn't just the league. It was people in New Orleans at LSU and elsewhere. Well, speaking of the big picture, what do you think the greatest challenge is for the NFL going forward? Well, I think part of it is the uh, driven by the success and the, and the size of the audience and, uh, and the fact that uh, so many institutions, let's say, that are not totally committed to the game as the game are riding on the popularity of the NFL. Uh, you know, the legalized gambling, which is a result of the Supreme Court's decision several years ago, I don't, I don't think it's a good thing for the sport. I don't think it's a good for pro sports or college sports or high school sports. You referred to my college game against LaSalle. I thought you were going to refer to my college game against NYU, where it turned out, you know, three of the players were shaving points. So I've been there when that happened, but, but I'm not saying it's going to happen again, but I remember Bill Bradley testifying when Congress passed that law in 1991 to separate gambling from sports. Bill Bradley said there's two games, 
my game and their game and never the two should meet. And I think that the two have met in a way which is not good for the game. And I don't think it's good for the country. So I think that's the challenge. The popularity cre creates challenges that go way beyond the game and they create controversy when you try to deal with them. I think what's going on with college sports today is a similar situation as a result of the Supreme Court decision with the nil issues and the collectives and all the money that's being put up by people to pay, quote, pay for licenses when it's becoming a form of signing bonuses for kids coming out of high school and going to colleges. And you shouldn't, recruiting shouldn't be about signing bonuses. It should be about the sport at, at a particular school and about an education. And all the incentives now are commercial and no one even talks about education, even though the people are playing for colleges and universities. Yeah, no, you're right about that. Um, and it, it's, it's funny when, when you mention that, um, I remember going to um, some college basketball games years ago when I was covering the NCAA and they were talking about the student athletes. And I said, student athletes, these guys are leaving after one year. I mean, they're not, they're not graduating. And, and yet that sort of bothered and concerned me. I went to a school where they, they didn't give athletic scholarships. And I don't know whether they did at Georgetown when you were there as well, but, um, but they didn't give athletic scholarships. And I right. always found that tough. And, and I think I look at the, the, the gambling and the, 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 you know, embracing the gambling, like you mentioned, I, I think that's a real tricky thing because it, it's called, sort of like in, in one respect, and I'm not, I'm not putting these on the same level, but within the replay, once it's here, it's here to stay. And now this is here, it's here to stay. So how do you manage it? Because we've already seen this Calvin Ridley situation. I realize that's, you know, that's not because of it, but it's certainly something that comes up. And, and now that it's here, how do you manage that? Because the NFL has embraced it. Right. And, and all the other leagues have it. Yeah, as well. Those, those, I think, are two of the big challenges. I think so, social media is another big challenge. Yep. Giving, every, giving every fan access to a platform is, is a big challenge for the whole country and indeed for the whole world, not just, not just for the NFL and sports. Sure, sure. Um, and one last one I want to throw in here. This one actually comes to my wife because she worked in the NFL office. So she said, you got to ask him. Um, it's not often we have someone from the league office inducted. You know that. Ira knows that. It's really not often. But this is the second time in three years. And actually, it's two years since you weren't actually inducted until 2021 because of COVID. You had to wait a year. How does that make you feel? I mean, two people from the league office in two years, really. Well, I, I think it's for me, it's the most important thing because the league, the league is great because the commission works with it with a team of people, you know, six, eight hundred people at the league level. But you're also working with 28, 30, 32 teams. It's a very complex organization. Bill Walsh used to say there are five or six thousand people that make the NFL successful. And so getting some recognition for, those, for that group of people who are normally invisible, but who are critical to the success of the enterprise, to me, is extremely important. And, I, and it's a tribute to the people who, who make the leaders successful. And Art, Art was one of those. Art was one of the preeminent people who makes the league successful. He gets the credit, but I, I get some derivative credit for having had him as the head of officiating for two years and working with him as a consultant for seven more years until 1999. Well, Tagliabue, thanks so much for your time. Enjoyed it. And thanks so much for delivering Art McNally's mail. <laughs> I've been known as the mailman in Pennsylvania ever since. <laughs> thanks, Paul. Thanks. Thank you, Paul. That was former NFL commissioner Paul Tagliabue and Ira. What a great story. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Paul Tagliabue, you know, formerly known as an NFL commissioner, now known as the mailman in Yardley, Pennsylvania. And Clark, it, it was great to see him in, in such a relaxed uh, environment. Uh, and I think, um, you know, our viewers 
and our listeners uh, will relish the the chance, the opportunity to see him, um, you know, in a different style. And, um, you know, the knock is that he was a little haughty, a little cold towards the journalists. But we didn't sense that today at all, Clark. I, I didn't. Yeah, no, I didn't either. He was a pleasure to deal with. And uh, and I've always enjoyed talking to him and, and, and more so today than ever. Uh, Ira, you don't hear Ian playing any kind of noise. There's no, there's no crowd noise. There's nothing. You know why? Because there's no I was there this week, Ira. There's no I was there. Because I know where you were last week. Yeah, you were in Las Vegas and you were hot. But you weren't hot because you were in Las Vegas. You were hot and bothered after we did our broadcast about the inflated cost of NFL broadcasters. So, Ira, if you want to rant, go ahead. The floor is yours. All right, Clark. I'm going to throw this out to you and our junior partner, Mr. Ian Glendon, who makes this whole thing successful Clark, I said it the other day. I'm going to say it right to you. I have been watching professional sports for 55 years, Clark, 55. I don't remember a single moment when I viewed a sporting event on television based on the broadcast crew, based on who was going to be in the booth. Clark, this fall... When the Packers play the Bills, I'm going to watch it. And I don't care if Ian Glendon is calling the game. Clark, I don't understand this crazy money. I don't begrudge these people. Uh, Maybe it's in terms of attracting sponsors or whatever. But, Clark, in terms of attracting eyeballs, I just don't get the relationship between the broadcast booth and the viewing audience. Maybe you can school me on this. No, I can't. I can't. But I can't school you on this. Don't throw our producer, Ian Glendon, under the bus, okay? Because he makes this possible. He makes this broadcast possible. And since we throw Ian a bone there, Ian, the floor is yours. I got no final thoughts this week. And I know because Tom Brady is coming back, you must have some. Uh, I, I will say this, that the game of football is better when Tom Brady is playing. And I know there are folks out there that can't stand the guy because, you know, he beat the Steelers for so many years or the Ravens or the Chiefs or, you know, the Colts or so on and so forth. But um, we all know when he decided, what was it, 43 days ago now that he was going to walk away, that he wasn't walking away because he lost any sort of skill or any sort of zip on his arm or anything like that. He was walking away for different reasons, and I think good for him. He thought him out. Um, he didn't buckle under the pressure and just stay retired. He realized this is his only chance in his life to play football, and uh, I'm happy that he's back. I'm happy that he's going to play at least one more season, and now maybe I can convince him to play three or four more. You never know. Yeah, well, Clark, you, uh, possible. Clark, you, you might have missed my tweet, which was, I think, uh, Less than 20 minutes after the Brady announcement, Clark, on uh, Sunday, um, we were in our hotel room and my wife was telling me about how wonderful her massage was at the Mirage. And uh, we're not going to get into the cost of that, uh, Mr. Judge. Were you given um, that massage? Were you the one giving it? <laughs> it was a strapping young man with supple hands. Okay. Uh, but that anyway, wasn't you. <laughs> Clark, uh, 20 minutes after, I, I fired off a bunch of tweets, Clark, but I'm going to lay the first one on you because I think a couple of people laughed. Clark, very simply, very simply, take a seat, Mr. Gabbert. Take a seat. I saw it. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to take a seat. You know what? 
we're going to take a seat because that's going to do it. And Ira, that's going to do it for our 101st podcast. Ian Glendon told me last week was our 100th podcast, our 100th podcast. Did, did we have any rockets, red glare, any celebration? No. So, Ian, can you fire off something for us now? Or- uh, everyone else celebrates 100. We celebrate 101 because we're just that different. There we are. <laughs> well, if you want to hear how different we are, you can go to uh, fullpresscoverage.com and hear this or any eye test for two. You just pull down the podcast icon, click on the eye test for two. And guess what? You're there. And if not, just tune in next week. We'll be here. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>